0: Uh, if you saw there was a note sheet on the back table and you want to pick up a copy of that, you definitely can. There's a few more notes on there than we might normally normally happen on a Wednesday night. We're going to do a little bit more of kind of college, seminary, classroom teaching things, going through some aspects of the Holy Week, but, but also some Bible study leading up to that. So there's a whole series of notes. Let me see if I can figure out how to do this. Where's Stephen when I need him? Come on, Stephen. I'm glad your engineering degree really, really pays off at times like this, so, uh, aviation. aviation degree, there, you oh, flying high, that's right, yeah, thank you for doing that, all right, before we, uh, so Matthew, uh, chapter 26 is where we're going to be here in just, uh, just a little bit, and we're going to have a time of prayer before we, before we get to that portion of, of Matthew 26 and, and think a little bit about Holy Week events, before we do that, a time to, time to pray for one another. Is there anything going on in your family and your class, updates that you have for us, ways we can be praying for, for one another? Yes. Okay, so Miss Phyllis, Phyllis Poe, she had back surgery and it went really well but Jackie was saying she has to listen to the doctor for everything to be effective in recovery and for her to be patient, but uh, pray for, for Jack and for Phyllis. Darla Price continues to recover from, from her heart surgery. Uh, pray, pray for her as well. She, she had put it back on.
1: This is Darla. Yeah. yeah.
0: Darla's situation is another one of those reminders. Um, if you feel symptoms related to a heart attack, pay attention to those <laughs> uh, and to, to be able to go in. Her situation could have been a, a lot worse had it not been uh, responding at the right time to, to some symptoms, and so, uh, yeah, I wanna pray, pray for her. I heard from Darla Fletcher yesterday. She continues to go through preparations for cancer treatment, uh, but just God's work in her life spiritually through this is incredible. Her her perspective about trusting in the Lord, sensing His work in her life, even her spiritual growth through this cancer diagnosis is—it's incredible. Hearing hearing her uh, express that and testify to God's work in her life. So, continue to pray for Darla Fletcher. Yes, sir. David Rieger, uh, in my studies Yeah. We'll let you off the hook. That's okay. You work on teeth. Yeah. 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 I w I'd heard that he was sick. I just didn't realize what. Or, or I mean, was. Yeah. Yeah. Benny. thanks for that, Paul. Yes, sir. Yeah. Pacemaker, yeah. Well, I know you've been through a lot, brother. It's been a rough two months for you with things. So. At least you can get some answers. You might feel better there. Poor Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) The blessing and curse of cell phones. Yeah, Carl. Yeah, Miss Judy goes in for another series of tests related to her cancer diagnosis that she thought she was going to have last week and didn't get any answers, so she takes more tests related to it, but... Continue to pray for Bill and Judy, which is a great chance as well to plug that on Sunday we had our prayer room ministry lunch. And just another reminder that as you think about praying as part of the church, we have the prayer room where people take our slots throughout the week. If that's not something you're a part of, but you want to get connected, let us know. Miss Judy has led that ministry for, for a long time for us, and so we'd love to give you an hour slot where you can go in there and be able to pray for people one of the neatest things that comes out of the prayer room ministry, if you're not aware of this, uh, in there, there's prayer grams, like little notes that you can write, stuff them in an envelope. We obviously foot the bill for mailing it out, but it's incredible the stories we hear back from people. Hey, I got a prayer gram. It came at just the right time. Thank you for praying for me. There's been some amazing things. So if, you, if you're not connected to that prayer room and, and you want to be, let me know. We'll, we'll get you signed up. Um, there are several people to help you get connected and take you over and show you where the room is. It's just right up by the offices here in the front. You get a special key with access at all not at all times, but <laughs> to get you in there into the prayer room, so
1: A.J.: All right. Thanks, Carl.
0: Here in a minute, I want to tell you a little bit about a really, really quick version of the trip that Jim and I took to Panama last week. But I also thought this would be a good opportunity tonight for us to pray for missionaries that you all are connected to. So there are, there are missionaries that our, our church family is connected to that we say, hey, we're, we're tied into these people together. But we also realize, Amanda and I, we have friends that are missionaries that you know our church doesn't directly support, but we pray for and are connected to, and you all have those. Does anybody have friends uh, serving uh, as missionaries right now in different places that you want to tell us about? And oh, oh my goodness, the hands have exploded. So uh, all right, we'll start on this side. so <laughs> In Japan right now would be quite the place to be.
1: Yeah. Fantastic!
0: Another friend or another family member? Oh, they they yeah, yeah, so like yeah, yeah, yeah! Fantastic! That's great. We have some friends in Guam? Yeah,
1: property where they build a church. church faci- yeah, that's a big deal.
0: Okay, back that story up just a minute. Bob is related to you. How? How is Bob related to you? So, he, Bob, I just thought I was trying to make sure Bob is her brother in law. Yeah, he's one of the coolest guys on, on the planet. So, uh, <laughs> that's amazing. That's really neat. Yeah. Yeah, we love, we love Bob. So, I've not, I've not met her before. She's Debbie. She's got to be pretty awesome if she goes with Bob, so uh, that is fun. You know what organization they work with, Betsy? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, New Tribes is the one I was thinking of. We have some friends with New Tribes as well, yeah. (laughs) yeah <laughs> yeah sure that's home for them <laughs> yeah ah, it's so good jim when are you guys going to south carolina you and uh, pretty pretty? Sli- yeah, okay yeah what's the what's the plan in, in south carolina what's that event you're tied into that as well. Or Jim's <laughs> taking you anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so thankful for that, Machine. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, it's amazing how how the body of Christ works, where we're, we're networked together in these, these different ways, these partnerships in the gospel. Uh, I love receiving the prayer updates from missionary friends around the world. You see those emails come in, and you think about all the things that are happening, and it's just, just incredible to think about how the gospel is going out in, in ways like that. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, let's pray about those things, and then, and then we'll talk a little bit about Matthew, Matthew 26 here. I thank you for uh, tonight as we pray and see all the hands go up around the room about missionaries that we know around the world. We know we use that term technically of people you've sent to other locations and every one of us is on mission in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and we take that seriously what that looks like in our in our own homes. God, thank you for our friends though that uh, have responded to your call to go to another location to help start churches and to translate the Bible and spread the gospel, Father, I pray that as we pray for them, as we think about them, that it would impact the way we live our lives on an everyday basis. God, I pray for those who are in difficult, uh, maybe dangerous situations, God, give them a sense of peace, a sense of direction about how to proclaim the gospel when maybe other people are are not sure where to turn in times of difficulty, God, that they would know they can turn to you and, and find hope through Christ. God, we pray for those who are starting new churches, God, as you gather people together and help them develop resources and, and locations, God, that you would raise up leaders. Thank you for the way the scripture is being translated and spread to different areas. Father, we want to see the gospel spread right here and in our area. Thank you for those that went out this afternoon to... Go door to door and and share with people. Thank you for people who gather in our prayer room throughout the week to pray. Thank you for a church that that takes those things seriously and and that partners together with other churches um, in so many different ways. Father, we pray for those in our family uh, who are hurting, going through difficulty, different diagnosis with cancer. And God, that you would guide them and strengthen them, help them to keep their eyes focused on you. God, we do thank you for our preschoolers and our kids and youth that are gathered tonight. God, that you would work in their lives in in powerful ways. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look first at Matthew chapter 26 tonight. We'll do this in in a a couple of different parts, but I want to start by reading Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to read quite a few verses here, uh, starting in verse 47. So this is twenty-six forty-seven in Matthew. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said greetings rabbi and he kissed him jesus said to him friend do what you came to do then they came up and laid hands on jesus and seized him verse 51 behold one of those who were with jesus <laughs> notice matthew was kind enough to conveniently leave out whose name this is <laughs> i think when you get to john's gospel maybe luke's gospel uh, the poor guy gets sold out on that but uh And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, who's also named in the other gospel, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Just a quick stop there to make a comment as we go. It's interesting the use of the word robber there where Jesus at another time when he's talking about the place of worship, he talks about how it's become a den of robbers when it should be a place of prayer for all nations. Now he's taken that word robber in relation to the temple and used it in a different different way, a different a different thing. He said, You you're treating me like a robber, but you're actually the ones who have robbed the temple. You're actually the ones who have acted like robbers. Verse 56, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven then the high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy what further witnesses do we need you have now heard his blasphemy what is your judgment they answered he deserves death then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying prophesy to us you christ who is it that struck you this is the word of the lord So what I want you to see first from this set of verses as we think about moving into Holy Week, as we think about this season of Lent, moving up to Easter, there are contrasts all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew loves to take one idea and then set it off against another to teach a lesson to show the way of Jesus versus the way of the world. It's really clear in this scene. So there are three things that are characterizing those opposed to Jesus First, they fall asleep consistently, as we've already seen in Gethsemane. They're not paying attention. Then there's the use of swords, or the use of physical force. And then there's this idea of scheming, that they feel like they have to work behind the scenes, that they have to come up with these plans, they have to come up with these false witnesses. So this idea of sleep, not paying attention to what's happening, swords, or the use of physical force, or scheming, this idea of human plans working against the things that are happening around. You contrast that with the way of Jesus. What's the way of Jesus? He trusts Scripture. He says, What is happening has been planned by God, and I, I'm not going to worry. He is silent before his accusers, and he uses this language about being seated in heaven. If you look down there at verse 64, Or verse 63, where they say, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one sent as the Messiah. And Jesus says in verse 64, essentially, yeah, it's even better than that. Uh, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What Jesus has said is, not only am I the Messiah who has come to rescue Israel, but the Messiah who's come to rescue Israel is actually the promised one of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. And Jesus brings together these realities of the power of God that's come before the people. And it's not a future reality, it's happening right now. And this is what they can't take. They can't take that the power of God has come through this one from, from Galilee, Jesus, who the people are calling the Christ, and he's saying, yeah, you're exactly right, I, I am the Son of Man, and if I would have thought about it, I would have added another S while we were on a roll with the letter S, so what is Jesus? He's scripture, he's silent before his accusers, he talks about being seated in heaven, and then throw another S in there, he talks about the power, supernatural power, so his power is not of, we take, we take classes in seminary about how to make phrases start with the same letter, and a uh, Just kidding. We really don't. But uh, sometimes it feels like that. So the other S there would be supernatural power. The people are trying to use physical force, swords. Jesus trusts in supernatural power, he believes his father is at work. You have that phrasing there in verse 53 where he says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. There's different reasons maybe why he uses 12 legions there. Quite likely, though, it might be one for me and one for the 11 disciples that are left. He's saying God can take care of you. He could send 12 legions. Every one of us could have 6,000 angels immediately at our side, and you've picked up a sword you picked up a piece of metal, like that physical force is really going to make anything happen in the plans of God. God could do more in this situation than you could ever imagine. And then he gets to the point of saying, and in fact he is. He is at work here because I'm the one who's come as the Psalm 110 Messiah. I'm the one who's come as the figure from Daniel 7 who's going to be seated. That phrasing down there, seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven, that's Jesus' ascension. That's the fact that he's been vindicated. He's been resurrected. He's been vindicated. What was said about him is, is true, and, and you can trust in him. What you see in this story, though, again, is just this, the difference between what does it look like when we try to make things happen according to human power, and what does it look like when we trust the word of God and the power of God to do what only God can do. And really, that's the contrast. Do I need to make things happen? Is it up to me? or is God working in ways that only he can work and I want to be a part of that? that. That's what we want to see happen and that's the connection with missions. That's this connection with what it means for us to be a church, for what it means for us to be on mission, this idea of God. We're not out here trying to make something happen by our own power. We know that if anything good happens through us, it happens because you're at work according to your word and according to not us making it happen, but according to your power. So that kind of takes me back to our trip to Panama last week as we were working with uh, these pastors there and they're talking about starting these, these new churches. One of the new churches is being started in an area maybe 15 minutes away from the, the first church and Rufino and Kelsey, who will be here in August when we have our mission celebration day, but Rufino and Kelsey are working out in this area, and they built up relationships with these young kids in the neighborhood, and they've done Bible clubs and things like that, and now their parents are coming. There's an incredible story, though, that, that's come out of that, where in Panama, and this is true for Latin America as a whole, but I think particularly in Panama, uh, marriage is not common. It, it's, it's common for a man and a woman to get together To have a kid, maybe two kids, and then the man just moves on to whoever the next relationship would be. And so, in the churches, they have to really work hard to promote marriage and the importance of marriage. Well, in this little community, how many of you grew up in a small town? Like, small, I don't know what you get, like small, maybe... Uh, Under 5,000 people, you know, pretty small place. Our little town had 890 people uh, in the town. And you grew up in a small town, this idea that everybody knows everybody's business and everybody knows what's going on. So this little town in in Panama there, one of the ladies in the town where the church meets, one of the ladies there in, in town where the church meets, she had gotten divorced actually not divorced, the man they were never married, the man just left, uh, went down the street and married another lady just a little bit further down the street. Lady number two comes to faith in Christ, the church meets at lady number one's house. <laughs> she, there aren't ten churches in town to pick from if you get mad at somebody or you don't like somebody where you can just go to another church, that's not an option, <laughs> there's the church in town. So she realizes, I'm going to have to reconcile with this lady. We're going to have to figure out how to make this work. And so she, to her credit, goes and talks to the other lady and says, I want to ask your forgiveness. I want us to be sisters in Christ. I want us to be able to work together. And through the power of Christ, God brought reconciliation to those ladies such that now they're able lady number one host the church lady number two with lady number one's former man they worship together they minister together and and Rafino and kelsey were talking about that's the type of thing that happens when god's spirit is at work that's the th- type of thing that happens where you have to be forced in the church to deal with these relationships not from a human perspective, but this is something that, that only the Lord can do. And we saw examples like that over and over and over again. And when you see that, you're like, that's what it looks like for the gospel to be at work. I know for what, one of the things the trip did for me is sometimes you have to step out of your own situation and see the Lord at work and then come back into your situation and you see it differently. I think for me, that's the value of hearing about missions around the world or participating in mission trips is when I step out of my situation, I see God work, and I step back in and say, whoa, now everything looks different. Now I think differently about how I use my time, how I use my money, how we even think about church as a whole. And so I want to encourage you, continue to stay connected to those missionaries that God's put in your life. Continue to celebrate stories about how the Holy Spirit is moving. And then when you see those things, say, God, how can you use that to change the way I think uh about my life there's a lot of questions out there about should churches be doing short-term mission trips are there's a bad form of mission trips that's just kind of a vacation in disguise and you you know you sort of add a little something on the end to make yourself feel better there's a form of that that's probably not healthy but i think the value of mission trips and mission partnerships for a church is it lets us see the gospel at work in different places and then in the process it changes us to that end in august Jim has already begun working uh, on a mission conference that we're going to be able to host here at Emmaus, where we bring in missionaries that we're connected with, and they share with us what God is doing in, in their areas, and we have a chance to learn from them. They do training for us about how we can do missions and ministry right here, do evangelism right here, and then in the process, we have a chance to encourage them and send them back. So they come in, they train us, we learn from them And then we love on them and send them out. One of the things that we found, and Jim has found this to be consistently true the more he connects with different people. A lot of times what missionaries need more than anything is not for us to come and do something that honestly they probably could have done on their own. Uh, What missionary families need more than anything is just for us to come and encourage them to hold up their arms and say, we love you, we care for you, let us love you, let us invest in you, let us encourage you, and then they're able to keep going uh, because a lot of them don't have that type of encouragement. We're going to go back this summer and we're going to do a pastors and pastor wives conference for the pastors in this uh, association in Panama because they said, you know what, we have training, we're working on different things. What we've never had though is something just for the pastors and their wives just for them to be loved on, for them to be encouraged, for them to be cared for. And so we're going to have a chance as Emmaus to go back and do that uh, for that church there to, to build them up so they can continue to do, do those type of things. But when we think about missions as a church, I hope that you'll see this. God, this is your spirit at work. This is you at work, and you call us into that, and we want to be obedient to that. I hope that's an encouragement to you. I hope in August that you'll jump in and be a part of that missions conference and I say be a part, Jim may be coming to some of you because these missionaries are going to need a place to stay. <laughs> so uh, as we bring missionaries in, if you're able to provide some meals, if you have extra rooms in your house where we can put some people up, uh, we would love to have you be a part of that. There's going to be a lot of neat ways that you, you can connect with that. So anything else for August? I know we're still kind of putting together plans, Jim, but uh, just meals and... Yeah. Ricardo and Rosa, <laughs> the last time they were here was the uh, May 2013 tornado, and they've talked for seven years straight about the fact that they were in Oklahoma during the May 2013 tornado. I think they are still freaked out seven years later. They said, "Do you guys have tornadoes in August?" I'm like, "No, it might be 110, but this would be the August that we would have tornadoes in Oklahoma when Ricardo and Rosa. Uh, come back, though Jim has told Ricardo that he's going to take him noodling, he's going to take him hand fishing, so uh, now Ricardo's going around Panama telling people that <laughs> he's going to go, uh, what's that, Cody Pogue. Cody Pogue is going to take them noodling, not Jim, we should clarify, yeah, we should clarify who's going to do the hand fishing, uh, hand fishing there, yeah, so they're, they're so excited about being a part of that, it be a lot of fun. All right, let me do something else in the time we have left. Uh, I want to do a little bit of historical background when we're thinking about Holy Week as we lead, as we lead up to Easter. On your notes, I'm going to go back to the notes a lot more over the next few minutes, but I wanted to lay out a few lessons for how we read and study Scripture. Some of this we've talked about before, and then I want to take you through a little outline here. So lessons for reading and studying Scripture. Number one, we need to think about the difference between reading vertically and reading horizontally. What we mean by that? Vertical reading is what we're doing on Sunday morning. We're studying through the Gospel of Matthew. So when we talk about the Gospels and how we understand the Gospels in Scripture, vertically means I study through a book. I see the themes, I see the way the book develops. Horizontal reading is when I look at a story in Matthew and then I compare it to the same story in Mark the same story in Luke, the same story in John. Primarily, we read vertically. We, the Gospels are given to us one at a time as unique contributions, so we want to read through those Gospels. But sometimes you want to compare a story, like what does that say in Matthew? What does it say in Mark? Why does Matthew say it one way and Mark says it differently? So think about those differently when we think about the Gospels. Secondly, remember the difference between the synoptics? The synoptics is the fancy word we use when we talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of stories. They share a lot of language. There's different s- scenarios about which one was written first, second, third, but either way, they're really tied together. John seems to be living in his own world sometimes. He writes in his own way, he writes in his own order, he includes different stories, he doesn't include the same stories. So you have to take into account different perspectives, and that's going to come into play here in a little bit. Remember when we read scripture, we're reading historically. These are real stories, real places, real people. We read literarily, meaning they've come to us as incredibly structured documents. These, these aren't accidental, just flow of mind, uh, if you give a mouse a cookie, you know, type of stories, like where it just jumps from one eye. These are put together in a, in a really uh, precise literary way, but they're also theological documents. And so when you study Scripture, it's helpful as you're reading through Scripture to think about what's the historical element, What's the literary element? How did this come to us? And what's the theological element? If you can tie those three together, Bible study and, and uh, Sunday school and understanding the Scripture, it, it will just explode for you. It's, it's incredible the way those three come together. Number four, pay attention to what is actually in the Scripture text and what is not. It's amazing how much we bring our ideas or our uh, Sunday school background or the VeggieTale video they really liked as a kid or, you know, we bring things to the text that sometimes when you read the text isn't actually there. And so we want to make sure we're dealing with scripture as God has given it to us, not all this other stuff that we're bringing in. Number five, multiple perspectives on a story is not the same as contradictions. So your friend who's an agnostic or an atheist or doesn't really love the Bible and sends you articles from the internet about all these contradictions that are in scripture when you look at the gospels you are going to get multiple perspectives on the same event throughout scripture you're going to find multiple perspectives on different things multiple perspectives is not the same as contradictions and so remember that when someone starts to say well don't you think it, see, no 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 this is just looking at a situation from different perspectives which is a good thing we're glad we have four gospels and not just one We're glad we have 66 books and not just one because of the way that God has given us uh, his word. Number six, remember the value of doing good apologetics and historical corroboration. In other words, we we read something in scripture and then you find out that some archaeologist or scientist has run onto it and you see these connections that are made that begin to build up a good foundation for, yeah, this is the way the stories have come to us. And then number seven, we're always trying to ask, What is the purpose of the text? What is this text? It's not just historical information. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we're always guarding ourselves between, I'm just reading this as history, or I'm just reading this as literature. We're trying to get to what is the purpose of this? Why has God, I did a, a paper in seminary, On the inspiration of Scripture and I looked at other places where the idea of inspiration was used inspiration when it's talked about for Scripture generally is not talking about the truth of Scripture it's talking about the impact of Scripture or the fact that Scripture should lead us to live in a certain way so when we hear that the Bible is inspired it is true that the Bible is inspired it's true it's a true Scripture But the main uses of the word inspiration in the ancient world have to do with the power of that text impacting the way you live. Not just impacting truth in your mind, but it has to do with our actions. And so when you hear inspiration, think about it in that way. Okay, now let's walk through an outline of of Holy Week here. Some questions that have to do with with the biblical story. The first has to do with the duration of Jesus' ministry. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it looks like Jesus' ministry only took about one, maybe two years maximum. The reason is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have a very geographic outline to Jesus' ministry. They put most of his work in the north, in Galilee, and then it looks like at the end of his life, he just heads south to Jerusalem when it's time for his crucifixion. And so they combine a lot of stories in a very thematic, geographic type of way. But when you read John's gospel, John mentions in his gospel at least three different Passovers. And in John's gospel, Jesus is constantly going from Edmund to Norman and back to Edmund and back to Norman and back to Edmund. He's going back and forth between north and south, where in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, He's all in Edmund, and then at the end of his life, he just heads to Norman. He's, he's doing one trip. John has him doing three trips. Well, which one is it? Well, we seem to get from John a fuller picture of Jesus' ministry, that he went back and forth. Does this mean that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not true? No, of course it doesn't mean that. They're telling the story in a particular way for a particular purpose. John gives us a different perspective on the ministry of Jesus. If we didn't have John, we would think Jesus' ministry was two years John tells us no, this took a lot more there's a lot more going going on here. Now, that plays into Holy Week because not surprisingly, John deals with Holy Week different than Matthew, Mark and Luke. He's going to have a different perspective on it. What do we think about on Holy Week? Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, spends the night in Bethany, uh, Palm Sunday 2020, 10th Avenue North apparently has their final concert ever at Emmaus Baptist Church, so we have that happening. Uh, we found out that 10th Avenue North is disbanding after, not because they're coming to Emmaus are they disbanding. They were disbanding already, but we're going to be their last concert uh, apparently as, as a band, so that'll be Palm Sunday this year. But Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem a donkey, he spends the night in Bethany. Holy Monday is the, seems to be the day when he curses the fig tree He cleanses the temple, except, and I'm going to say except, but I think it it does happen twice. John takes the temple cleansing and puts it in John chapter 2. So you read about Jesus cleansing the temple in John chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it on Monday of Holy Week. Does he do it twice? Has John moved it to the beginning of his gospel to make a theological point? uh did matthew mark and luke move it to the end to make a theological point there's different questions about how that works but it seems like it happens for sure on on monday of holy week here tuesday is sometimes called teaching tuesday the the t helps you kind of remember what's going on there holy tuesday or teaching tuesday where jesus is teaching in the temple and you have the famous olivet discourse about the end of the age and the destruction of the temple spy wednesday which is great with little kids when you're trying to talk to them about about holy week you talk about spy wednesday when all this scheming is going on uh behind the scenes Monday thursday the word mondi comes from the latin mondum for command or commandment where jesus says a new command i give you love one another it's that upper room discourse at emmaus we'll be doing our Monday thursday event again this year but it's also the time of, of the Last Supper, it's the time of Gethsemane, and, and then the Betrayal. And then on Good Friday, you have these multiple trials that begin late Thursday night, seemingly running most of the night into, into Friday morning. Some people call it seven trials, some people call it six trials. If there's a seventh trial, if you ever see it listed as seven, it usually has to do with Jesus with the the crowd crying, crucify him. So is Jesus presented to the crowd a seventh trial after he appears before Pilate? It makes a lot more sense, I think, to present it as six trials. The first three trials, if you look at there, the first three trials are Jewish trials. And in all three of those, Jesus is deemed guilty. So he's before Annas the high priest, he's before Caiaphas. He's before the Sanhedrin, the kind of the governing religious religious body. Um, then, there's three Roman trials. And really, in all three Roman trials, he's deemed not guilty. Now, in the last one, Pilate just finally gives in and says, well, go for it. Um, it kind of gives a weird approval, but he's trying to wash his hands of what's happening. So if you ever have trouble keeping the six trials of Jesus in mind, just remember the first three are Jewish, and he's deemed guilty, the last 30 are Roman, and he's deemed not guilty. Now, not all six trials show up in every gospel. Sometimes a gospel writer will skip one trial. Again, does that mean that they're lying? That they, No, no, it's just they're emphasizing certain aspects of what's going on here in the Holy Week. And that leads down to the Peter's denials. And the gospel writers will will interweave Peter's denials with these larger trials that are going on. And then you have the crucifixion and the burial. Then you have Holy Saturday, that's sometimes called Silent Saturday or Dark Saturday, uh, depending on how you think about it, and then Resurrection Sunday or or Easter. And in the church calendar, you have eight weeks of Easter that leads up to Pentecost. So you have Easter celebrated in a lot of churches eight times leading up to uh, Pentecost, that time of the the coming of the Holy Spirit in power. Now, let's talk about something really interesting in the last couple of minutes. I found this particularly fascinating uh, personally, but what is the day of Jesus' death? You're like, well, of course he's crucified on Friday. It's, It's obvious that he's crucified on Friday. It actually gets a little bit tricky on how to make sense of this, and it has to do with the meal that Jesus celebrates with his disciples. Does he celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples when they meet together in the upper room. Here's how the data works, okay? The Passover lambs were sacrificed on the 14th day of Nisan. So, Nisan 14. Now, in the Jewish calendar, remember, a new day starts at sundown. (laughs) So, we would be starting a new day right now in the Jewish way of reckoning things. So, the Passover lambs were crucified on the 14th day of Nisan. Passover was eaten that evening <laughs> that began Nisan 15. That was strange. <laughs> so John 19, 14 says it was the day of preparation of the Passover. John is certain that Jesus was crucified with the Passover lambs. John is crystal clear about that in his gospel. Jesus is crucified at the time that the Passover lambs are crucified. The only trick is in the synoptics they seem to have Jesus and his disciples eating a passover meal together how is that possible how can john and his disciples or how can Jesus and his disciples be eating a passover meal if the gospel of john says that Jesus was crucified at the same time as the passover lambs what's going on there Most likely, the meal that Jesus and his disciples eat on Thursday night, it is a Passover meal, but Jesus is eating it with his disciples a night early because he knows he's going to be killed the next day. So the meal that he is having is still a Passover-type meal, but it's not the same meal that's going to happen on Friday night after the Passover lambs have been killed. Or the other option that a lot of scholars like is, Two calendars were at work at this time. There was two different ways of of following a calendar system. And Jesus and his disciples follow a calendar system that puts Passover one day earlier. And so the meal they have on Thursday night is still a Passover meal. But most people are going to eat Passover the following day, the day that's going to begin Saturday. And so that's the way that information is, is normally brought together. The reason that matters, you say, why in the world does that matter? it helps us get at the year that the crucifixion took place remember we don't know exactly what year the crucifixion took place but it had to be 30 AD or 33 AD because those are the two years around this time when the Passover fell on a Sabbath so if Jesus and his disciples if there's the celebration of the Passover and it happens on Sabbath you can narrow it down to either 30 AD or 33 AD and then you gotta flip the old coin to figure out is it is it 30 AD or 33? My money, my money lands on 33, but the people that say 30, they have really strong arguments as well. The really fun argument for 33 AD is that Pilate, he was appointed by a Roman leader who in 31 gets kicked out of his spot. And so Pilate kind of loses his middleman in Rome his supporter in Rome and he can't deal with any type of turmoil in in Jerusalem or his job is done. And so that might explain why he is so quick to give in to the crowd that wants to crucify Jesus. Because he's lost his support in Rome because that guy lost his job in thirty one. So by the time you get to thirty three, Pilate's like, I can't have any trouble happening or my job is my job is done. Again do we know one way or another? We don't know. But it seems to be it's either 30 or, or 33, one of, one of those two. Let me point you to some verses at the bottom, and we're going to wrap up. How do we think about this? Where does this lead us? The conclusion is that we know that Jesus fulfilled God's purposes from the incarnation to the cross so that we, though dead in sin, might live. When the fullness of time had come, God planned exactly the right time in history, not only for his son to be born, but for his son to die. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that according to your word and according to your plans that you sent your son Jesus to be born and to live and to die at exactly the right time in history, exactly the right place. God, so that we would be able to know your love for us so that we would be able to know what it is for Jesus to die for our sins and to make a way for life through the resurrection. God, I pray that we would feel that weight as we prepare for Easter. God, As we go through this season of Lent, as we think about Easter coming, as we think about the events of Holy Week. I thank you for the way that you give us these stories in the gospel to remind us what Jesus has done for us what it looks like to respond to you. And I pray that we would experience the power of your spirit at work in our church, at work in our lives, just as your spirit is at work all around the world right now. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.